So, 1 Corinthians 7. So far in our, in our study through Corinthians, Paul's been, you know, having to deal with uh, different issues that were going on in the church that he's having to come and bring correction to, right? Uh, issues of, of division and aligning with different people and, and bringing just disunity in the church. And so Paul's having to contend and deal with that, bring correction. In chapter 5, he's had to deal with uh, people looking to sue each other in the church. And so he's having to bring all this kind of, uh, of correction and help. And, and now in chapter 7, we kind of turn a corner because now instead of just, just confronting issues going on in the church, Paul is now answering some questions that people wrote to him from the church, uh, matters of theology and different questions relating to just them as a church here. And so Paul now, in the remainder chapter, uh, remainder of 1 Corinthians, is going to be looking to answer these questions that have been uh, directed to him. And he says right here in verse 1 of chapter 7, now concerning the things which you wrote to me. So you're going to hear that uh, several times now throughout the remainder of the book. Chapter 8, now concerning things offered to idols. In chapter 12, it's concerning things offered to, uh, or concerning things of spiritual gifts, concerning the collection for the saints in chapter 16. So Paul, in the next little bit here, is just really looking to answer these questions brought to him of different issues. And the content of chapter 7, hey Ram, how you doing? Good to see you, man. Uh, the con- Just surprised me. The content of the content of chapter 7 really flows nicely and very naturally out of chapter 6 where Paul has been dealing with sexual immorality. We've been covering this for a little bit in our last few weeks and he's been teaching us how in chapter 6 there how our bodies are ultimately the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? And our bodies are meant to glorify God. So glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's, it says right there in verse 20. So this is Paul's directed there in chapter six, you know, though you're, you may be surrounded by temptation, sin, sexual immorality, as they were in Corinth, he says, you need to honor the Lord with your bodies. Now they're hearing these things. And, and then in verse 18 of chapter six, Paul says, flee sexual immorality. So there may have been those now in the church of Corinth that are hearing these things thinking, wait a second, how does that pertain to us? I'm married, does that mean I need to flee sexual immorality? Does that mean I should have nothing to do with this? Do I need to abstain from all of these things? And there's these questions that are being brought up to Paul wondering about this area of marriage and sex. Chapter seven now is gonna deal with these questions and cover kind of a, a variety of subjects. And today, yeah, we are gonna be talking about marriage and sex. So if you have some young kids in here, little disclaimer, we're going to be uncovering these things, what the Bible and what God says about sex. We're going to keep it very church-friendly. Don't worry about that. Got no, no PowerPoints or anything like that. But we're going to be covering this as the Bible <laughs> deals with these things. And so in chapter 7, Paul breaks things down into three kind of sections. And we're going to we're going to deal with chapter 7 over the next three weeks, just as Paul breaks it down. He's going to cover divorce, or sorry, marriage in chapters, chapter 7, verse 1 to 9. He's going to cover divorce in verses 10 to 24. And then verses 25 to the end of the chapter, verse 40, he's going to cover singleness. So we're going to be looking ultimately over the next three weeks, marriage, divorce, and, and singleness, and how it all encompasses just kind of what God has you know, called us to in this, in this area of marriage and, and singleness. And so... 
We're going to look at three things here this morning as we look at these first nine verses. We're going to see reasons for marriage, regulations in marriage, and recommendations regarding marriage. So he says there in verse one, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, some had come to Paul with the concern here, obviously, as is addressed, of this area of a man touching a woman. Is this, is this okay to do? Is this right? And, and Paul's looking at that. Now, when we talk about, uh, you know, a man touching a woman, we're not talking about just a little friendly tap, a little love poke, uh, you know, a flirtatious kind of, you know. No, Paul's saying this in reference to this act of sexual intimacy. When, when he talks about not to touch, it's, it's referencing as it does oftentimes in the Bible, it referencing this fastening yourself to another in this act of intimacy and sexual union. Now, we've talked about this a bit previously, but in this day and in the church, there began to be certain views that began to grow and emerge. And especially, you know, within the, the early heresy of Gnosticism that came into the church, they viewed all matter and all flesh is evil. It was all basically bad and wrong. But out of that view grew kind of two camps. There was the ascetic camp that said, since it's all evil, all matter is evil and our, and our flesh is made up of matter, then we need to deny ourselves all you know, pleasures and, and desires. We need to abstain from all things of the flesh. That was the ascetic view. But then there was the hedonistic view that said, well, since it's all evil anyways, and there's nothing we can do to kind of redeem it or refine it, you can just go ahead and have at it. It's all okay. Since it's all evil, nothing you can do about it. You can just enjoy it now and it's all okay. So those, there were those that began to justify what they did saying, it's okay. That's not my spirit, really. It's just my flesh, and it doesn't matter what I do with that. That's what these, these views were. And so now Paul's dealing with a group in Corinth, these believers that are, are looking at all this going, is it, is it really okay for, for me to be with a, a person in this intimate way, for a man to take a woman in this manner? Now, remember the Corinthians here, I mean, they're living in this city that was like the Las Vegas of their day. It was a completely overly sexualized city. They're seeing and they're being surrounded by this element of sensuality all around. They're seeing the the abuses uh, of sex and misuses of these things. And they're beginning to wonder, is this something that we should just avoid altogether? Should we just stay away from all this? Wouldn't it be better if we just perhaps lived this life of celibacy rather than find ourselves being polluted in this immoral place that we live in? So this is some of the views and discussions. So they're writing to Paul. Is it, is it better for a man just not even to touch a woman? Should we just abstain altogether from that? And perhaps to your surprise, what does Paul say? It's good for a man not to touch a woman. And you look at that and you go, wait a second. That doesn't seem to to jive and line up with what we see elsewhere in Scripture. In fact, it says in Genesis 2.18, God says it's not good for a man that he should be alone. So it's not good that a man should be alone. And Paul says it's good that a man is alone. From Which one is it? Where, is it? Where do we balance this here? What's, what's the right order here? Well, we have to remember that Paul is dealing with a specific question that had a very specific context to it. And that's the context of, of, of Corinth and the Christians that are, are living there. Some have thought maybe Paul's coming down on marriage. That Paul's not, not 
you know, condoning or interested in the marriage. And he's, he's more so telling everybody, yeah, you know what? You just should stay away from the opposite sex altogether. And, and that's what some people are thinking. But yet that's not what Paul's heart is. In fact, that's not what Paul teaches elsewhere in scripture. In fact, Paul was a great teacher about the, the blessing of marriage and the, the right biblical view of marriage. Ephesians chapter five, a great passage there that deals with the relationship of a husband and a wife in the right biblical way. In fact, he says that marriage ultimately is a great mystery. It speaks of the great, the, the great relationship of Christ and the church. So Paul says, your marriage becomes a wonderful illustration of what Christ has done in and for the church, how Christ gave himself for the church sacrificially and how the church now yields and surrenders to the headship of, of Jesus Christ. That's what we see happening in the dynamic of, of marriage. So Paul wasn't down on marriage. He's not, he's not trying to say you need to avoid this. In fact, he says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, that, that he lists um, the forbiddance of marriage as one of the traits of apostasy. There were those that were beginning to come to church saying, oh, you, need, you shouldn't be married. You need to abstain. Paul says, man, that's just, that's just apostasy right there. That's not, not true biblically. So Paul's not down on marriage. He's not trying to avoid it. He's just simply saying it. And nor is he contradicting what God said in Genesis 2.18, as we already read there. Paul is simply laying out that there are times under unique circumstances where being single and not touching a woman in an intimate sexual way is the better choice, not being in that kind of relationship. And there are times where it's not the best choice either. In fact, look at what he says in verse two. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. So Paul begins to make it very clear. He's not against marriage. He's not saying that everyone needs to get married. He's simply saying that if you are married, you don't need to seek to get out of that or abstain from sex. This is something that can be enjoyed. Now, let me just say, you know, the, the discussion of sex in Christian circles can be a very uncomfortable and awkward thing. I know some of you are probably thinking, it doesn't seem to be too awkward for you. You've been talking about it for the last three weeks here, and I get that. That's fair. I understand, but, but we're just trying to deal with what the Bible says here, right? And the Bible brings up because this is something that God has given us, a beautiful, wonderful gift in bringing two people together as one. There is something that God has done as a blessing here in giving us sex that's meant to create a union and a close fellowship between a, a husband and a wife, making them one flesh. In fact, Paul would write, if he's the author of Hebrews, which I believe is Hebrews 13, 4, marriage is honorable among all men and the bed is undefiled. So this doesn't have to be something of a taboo subject, something that's like, ah, we shouldn't talk about that. No, the Bible says this is pure. It's pure. The bed, the marriage bed is pure when it is followed in the way that God has prescribed it to be lived out and enjoyed. And that is within the boundaries of marriage between a husband and and a wife, a man and a woman. And you know, heterosexual men, heterosexual, we have to break it down now in the culture we live in to be very clear. But that's what the Bible, and, and we'll see how the Bible even makes that clear. But we understand those sex isn't, you know, a typical social conversational piece that we're all gonna have is we, we're not showing up at church going, man, I can't wait to talk about sex with my brothers and sisters. We know this isn't a, a natural, common conversational piece, but it's something that's been given to us by God. In fact, if it wasn't for sex, guess what? None of you would be here today. 
right? So it's a normal, proper thing that God has given that needs to be understood in the, the way that God has intended it to be done. And we're thankful that he lays out for us in God's word. And that's what we're covering here today. Now understand, sex is not the only reason, of course, that Paul is saying to be married, nor is sex the most important reason for marriage. There's, there's, all, there's all sorts of reasons for marriage other than sex. Um, I don't have the list in front of me of those other things, but I, I do know it. I, I've been told it exists, but, you know, but here's what Paul is communicating. We, we have a sex drive that's given to us by God. God's created a sex drive in us, and it's meant to function within a committed relationship between a husband and a wife. Now, if a person doesn't have a spouse, that sex drive, what Paul's saying is, because of sexual immorality, let each one have his own spouse. Without a spouse, that, that sex drive could begin to really, you know, burn hot, and, and perhaps a person could really struggle with temptation and, and perhaps get engaged in sexual immorality, which is against sexual immorality is any sex outside of marriage or any kind of, uh, of thing in a, in a sexual nature outside of marriage is sexual immorality. It's the Greek word porneia. We understand the, the, the harm of it. So Paul simply says to avoid temptation that's prevalent in a sexualized culture as it was in Corinth, as we are facing and dealing with today, Paul says have a spouse. Have a spouse that you're not going to be struggling through life, having to lock yourself in a room without any contact with the world around us, right? Now understand, marriage does not stop all temptation. You still need to realize that there will be times that you simply need to crucify the flesh. Temptation is going to come even within the confines of marriage that you need to realize this is not good and I need to crucify the flesh. When my wife is watching Legends of the Fall for the 49th time and there's Brad Pitt riding up on horseback with the long flowing hair, it becomes very evident that I'm not Brad Pitt. And it becomes very evident that my wife needs to crucify the flesh. To say... No, uh, and, and understand that marriage does not solve all temptation, nor does it satisfy all your needs, but it's the great institution that God has given for a man and a woman to come together and enjoy this gift of intimacy in the right way. That's why God has given this to us. And notice the clarity we see again, given in that, in that verse there, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband the Bible speaks of a monogamous relationship between a heterosexual man and a heterosexual woman. This isn't let each person have their own partner. This is let each man have his own wife and a, a woman have her own husband. This is what God has prescribed. It, there's no other way that this works in the same way of, of sexual union, right? Male, female. Everything in our society operates in that, in that way. This is what God has intended. He goes on to say in verse three, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her and likewise also the wife to her husband. See, since we have normal and natural desires that God has given us regarding sex, it's important 
than that we find a spouse that we can give ourselves to and enjoy the blessing of being in union together physically and intimately. When, when Paul says, let the husband render to his wife, that word render speaks of to owe, to be indebted to, or to be an obligation to. In other words, Paul is saying, let the husband be obligated to give his wife the affection that's due her. Again, that's, that's owed to her. That's what Paul is saying. It's broken down in other translations. You got the New King James as we just read it. ESV says the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. New Living Translation says the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. Everybody's gonna run out and grab a New Living Translation this afternoon. <laughs> the husband, NIV says the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. So this is the idea that Paul's saying when let, let a husband render to his wife the affection to her, it's like it's fulfilling that physical role that you are meant to provide in marriage. You owe it to your spouse to say, I am yours. I am yours and I'm, I'm giving myself to you. We're gonna see that even more in the next verse, but let's stay here right now because Paul is showing here that now in a marriage relationship, it's your obligation to give the affection that is due, that is owed to your spouse. And that includes sexual intimacy. When you came together in marriage, you were making a covenant and a commitment. And part of that covenant is that my life is no longer mine, it is yours, and I am giving myself to your betterment and blessing and benefit. Paul is saying, in other words, that physical contact is not something to be abstained from in marriage. It's to be encouraged. It's to be encouraged. But again, we're not just talking about sex because Paul, Paul says, you know, render to your wife the affection. He talks about affection, which is in the Greek, goodwill or kindness. Be considerate, be kind to your spouse. It's possible, you see, to have sex without affection. It's possible to look at this simply, purely as a selfish physical act. But that's not the way that the Bible promotes this. In marriage, you're to be looking to meet each other's needs. And those needs may vary. Understand that the husband's need may, may be very different than the wife's needs. Don't just give in a way that you're hoping to receive. Understand what your spouse desires and needs and seek to give that. That's what you are to render, what you are to be indebted to, to serve and bless your spouse. And guess what happens? When you begin to give yourself for the betterment of your spouse, not only are they gonna be blessed, but you're gonna find there's gonna be a great blessing for you because you begin to pour into and provide that which your spouse ultimately desires, needs, and it's going to be for your benefit and blessing as well. It becomes a reciprocal thing. The relationship becomes more of a joy than a job. When you're seeking to say, it's not about me, it's not about what I can get out of this, it's about what I can give into this relationship. Paul continues on as we just looked at reasons for marriage. Paul goes on to talk about regulations in marriage, and he continues on this thought a little bit. Look at verse four. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife 
does. Now, going back to chapter 6, Paul has already said at the end of verse 19 there that you are not your own. So Paul makes it very clear, your life doesn't exist just for you. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. You are to live for the glory of God. But now in living ultimately for the glory of God, God has designed us to come together and be in union now with another in marriage, where again, we recognize we're not our own. We live to God spiritually in that connection, but we now live physically and have that physical connection with another in marriage. Ultimately, it's all to the glory of God, but we understand we're not our own. So Paul says the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but also the husband doesn't either. It's a two-way street here, right? This isn't some patriarchal thing, the, the man's in charge. Like Paul is addressing both people in all these things. There's great equality here. The wife doesn't have authority over her body. The, the husband equally doesn't as well. And this, for some, might be a very troubling verse because you're coming to the realization, perhaps, that your marriage hasn't really been functioning in this way. See, sex is a tool to build with, not a weapon to fight with, but too often times we've made sex this bargaining chip that we use to kind of hold over another, to kind of use for manipulation or to get our way. And we've, we've kind of abused sex or used sex as a weapon. That's it. Someone might say, no more sex for you until that garage is cleaned out, right? It's like, you're, that's it. I'm on strike until you finally do what I've been asking you to do. I tried that once with my wife and she yelled out, hallelujah, and it didn't quite go in my favor. I was like, that backfired but <laughs> you see well the bible says we don't have a right to do that we don't have a right to hold sex as something that we control and use for our benefit this is something that we're to be giving to the benefit of our spouse and to the benefit of the relationship in coming together in this intimate, dynamic way that, that sex creates. God's design for this is creating that intimacy and oneness together. Sex is a significant part of the marriage relationship which should not be neglected and it shouldn't be manipulated or controlling the relationship in some way. Now you might think, well, what if my spouse is just a sex-crazed maniac that I can't keep up with, right? And, and by spouse, we all know we're talking about husbands here. But um, you might think, huh, what, if, what, if, what if they're asking me to do something that I'm not comfortable with? What do I do in that situation? But again, the greater call is never about what can I get out of this, but what can I put into this? What can I, what can I give? Uh, again, Ephesians 5, verse 25, Paul lays out so clearly there when he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Jesus modeled this for us where he came sacrificially and he gave everything so that we could just profit and benefit and have life from that. And Paul likens that to say, Husbands, that's how you're to love your wife. You're to die. Women, Get up in arms over Ephesians 5, 22. Submit to your husbands. They get up in arms over that. We've got the harder part. We're called to die. Do you know how hard that is? It's not pleasant. 
I'll trade you any day. I'll submit over dying, no problem. But we're called to give ourselves, and husbands are called to, to die ultimately, to sacrifice themselves for the betterment of your wife. Wives are called to live in, in, in respect and yielding to husbands. And there should be no fear when the desire and the call that we are looking to fulfill is to serve our spouse. There should be no fear in, well, what about this? And what if they do that? And what if they want that? There should be no fear when we say, no, we're both collectively coming together to honor and care and serve one another. Your needs should never trump the care of your spouse. That's why it's render to your spouse the affection due them, the care, the kindness, the goodwill. Your needs should never trump the care of your spouse. And when two people are looking to fulfill that, there's no fear in, well, what about this? What about that? I've got to have some kind of control. I've got to have some kind of limits. There's no need for that when you are both walking collectively in a way, biblically, where your desire is to serve your spouse. You belong to each other. So give yourself to your spouse. That's what creates a fulfilling relationship and union. That's the Christian way. And then Paul says, and I like this, verse 5 brings more regulations, more promises. He says in verse 5, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. See, married couples are not to take too much time away from physical contact. Oh, Paul says there, there might be times where you need to kind of withdraw for the betterment of yourself, perhaps spiritually, and time to be devoted to other things like fasting and prayer. Paul says, there may be time where you agree to deprive yourself for a time, but don't let it be for a long time because you need each other. So make sure you're coming back together. I think there's some good guidelines, you know, to throw out for maybe the... the you know, consistency or the amount. I think typically it's a good practice to follow to, uh, you know, make sure you're having sex on days that start with tea, Tuesdays and Thursdays, today, tomorrow. Uh, I think that's a good starting point at least there. But see, Paul says that if you remain apart, you stay away like that, you give opportunity for the devil, for Satan, to come in and begin to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You give opportunity for that. You know, sex is so interesting because it's the one thing that Satan will do all he can to get you to do it outside of marriage, and he'll do all he can to stop you from doing it inside of marriage. Do you know how true that is? that this becomes an area within married couples that Satan will love to attack and begin to separate and divide couples over because he knows the blessing of that within the marriage. He knows that this is the very thing that God gives to unite two people in a strengthened, bonded way. And he also knows, and again, this is where, where, where sex is, one of those unique things that, again, is a blessing done the right way within marriage 
but yet there's a real curse done the wrong way outside of marriage. Satan knows that if he can get people doing it outside of marriage, it's going to be destructive. And if he can keep people doing it within marriage, it will have an equally destructive force at work in that relationship. Because two people are not going to be growing together as they ought to be. They're not going to be knitting themselves. That's that idea of being joined together, knitting yourself together. This is God's plan right from the beginning when he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. That's that idea of being joined, being knitted together, being bonded, glued together. You're fusing your lives together, body, soul, spirit. That's why sex, as Paul would say there in chapter 6, verse uh, verse 18, that every sin a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. There's something that goes on within that you're fusing your whole part and giving part of yourself away in that outside of marriage, it's harmful, but within marriage, it's what's needed to secure that bond and blessing of oneness and union within marriage. It's a wonderful dynamic that takes place. That's why God has given us this gift, why he's given us a sex drive, so that it'll be something that we desire and we will utilize within marriage. If you want to build a healthy and strong marriage, serve one another through this gift that God has given to secure and ensure a oneness and a joining together. Now remember, there's a lot that goes into a relationship than just sex. Don't think that, you know, Seeing this verse, don't deprive one another, except it's, it's a, a verse that I know many um, husbands have underlined and circled in their, in their wives' Bibles. Um, and it's something we can oftentimes throw out there like, oh, no, no, you can't deprive. And, and we think this is just my you know, God-given right just to command it. And yet we think sometimes we can just be a jerk all we want throughout the day and then just expect this. No, it it's, doesn't work that way. This is something that we need to be pouring into and, and having that connection with the heart and not just other parts throughout the day where we're saying, you know, I want to be growing in intimacy with you throughout the day and just how I talk with you, how I serve you when I'm doing the dishes, when I'm out doing this activity. I want to be connecting with you. I want to be blessing you. Don't just think that this is something that just you flip a switch and it's, it's good to go. You need to be investing into this throughout the day, throughout the week, pouring in, having that care for your spouse. And when you begin to do that, you'll find that it's soon all those little investments made just begins to bubble over into that expression of physical union and, and sexual activity that's meant, again, to be a great blessing in the relationship. Paul says in verse 6, but... I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. And now, that doesn't mean that Paul wasn't speaking you know, through the Holy Spirit, that this was an inspired scripture. It certainly is. It's in the Bible. But what he's simply saying, and most likely in reference to what he just wrote in verse 5, he's saying, this is not a commandment that you need to be you know, separating, depriving yourself for a time, and then come back. That's something you can choose to do. It's a permission, but it's not a commandment. And he emphasizes, be sure that this is not something you continue to do or prolong in doing, but that you come together. I've seen, you know, too many marriages that have been on the rocks and have remained shipwrecked 
because they've deprived themselves of this beautiful gift that God's given them. And the minute that oftentimes struggle happens, feuding begins to grow, it's this act of sex that gets shelved and kind of put away. And when that happens, there's a considerable strain and inability ultimately to really truly come together. And yet it's this very act that's meant to secure us together in closeness, in union, in, in intimacy. But yet when the devil begins to get a foothold and begins to, to bring this kind of uh, a friction and struggle, this very act that's meant to bring us together is the very thing that gets put away. And Paul says very clearly, don't, don't deprive yourself of one another of these things. Don't, don't let the enemy have a foothold. It's very hard very hard to remain angry and distant from your spouse when you are together in an incredible intimate act like this. Let's just face it. It's hard to remain in a place of anger when you come together and you give yourself to each other in this way. So Paul says, this is not a, a commandment to do. It's a concession. It's a permission. But understand the blessing that is formed in this great act that God has given us of sexual union. Well, lastly, we've seen the reasons for marriage. We've seen the regulations in marriage. Lastly, we look at the recommendations regarding marriages. Paul continues to build on some of these things, but kind of looks at another angle here now. He says in verse 7, For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, and one, one in this manner and another in that. So what does Paul mean when he says, I wish that all men were even as I myself? What does that mean? That they were all just a great husband like you were, Paul? No, it's believed actually that Paul was single when he's writing this. And the reference he's making is that he's saying, I wish that all people were able simply to be single as I am. But nevertheless, each one has their own gift from God. Whether it's to be single or to be married. Each one has their own gifts. Some are equipped to be single and some God equips to be married. Jesus himself said in Matthew 19, verse seven, but he said to them, all cannot accept the saying, but only those to whom it has been given for there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb and there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He was able to accept it, let him accept it. So Jesus brings up this issue of eunuchs and, and eunuchs were those that were ones that were celibate. Some have been born that way. Some were made that way. Some have chosen that lifestyle of being celibate. Some chose that lifestyle to be celibate, to honor the Lord and to commit themselves to the kingdom of heaven's sake. They've done it under the service of the Lord. See, we've kind of made marriage, it, it seems oftentimes, like the, the highest and, and, and greatest goal or, or call of God. We've kind of elevated marriage like, oh, if you're not married, oh, I'll pray for you. That's so sad. You know, we've kind of made marriage that way, like, oh, you're single, oh. You know, and it's such a shame that we've, we've viewed singlehood like this because Paul begins to lift up and elevate singlehood in a way where he's like, there's great blessing and benefit that comes from that. He's gonna talk about that in a, in a little bit here. But it's a shame we haven't done a better job, especially as a church, not this church specifically, but just Christianity in general, 
It's a shame we haven't done a better job of honoring singlehood and the blessings that it can provide. Be careful not to look down on someone who isn't married because each one, Paul says, has their own gift. Some are equipped and gifted and are, are used to God in that way, in a greater way, through singlehood. And, and some are equipped to be married, but don't try to force someone into something that they've not been gifted by God to fulfill. Now, the question is, if Paul's single right now, was he ever previously married? There's lots of speculation that's been made, and we can't you know, know with certainty that he was married. What we do know is that he was single at this time, and he encouraged others in it. Perhaps Paul was a widower at this time. Perhaps he was previously married and his wife left him or divorced him when Paul converted to Christianity, when he came to faith in Christ, as was a very common thing. When a Jew became a Christian, the family would excommunicate him. The whole society or culture would excommunicate them. When a, when a, a person, a, a, a Jew, became a believer in Christ, the family would oftentimes hold a funeral. They saw it as such a... a a dividing line for them. So it's possible that Paul, his wife, left him. It could be that Paul was never married. But we do have some hints in Scripture that would seem to suggest that Paul was previously married. In Acts chapter 26, verse 10, it talks about Paul being given this authority to you know, persecute the church. And in Acts chapter 7 and 8, we see at Stephen's martyrdom that Paul was there providing the, the authority in that which would uh, cause us to believe that he was a part of the Sanhedrin with the Jewish Supreme Court. And it was a requirement for a member of the Sanhedrin to be married and to have a family. So it's suggested and believed that Paul was previously married. In other words, here's a guy that knows what it's like to live life on both sides of the spectrum, what it's like to be single and what it's like to be married. And his conclusion is that he wishes all people could be like him living free from the extra responsibilities of marriage. See, could you imagine Paul, if he was married, coming to his wife one day and saying, hey, honey, uh, Barnabas and I are going to be going on a little trip here, uh, just going out to share the gospel, probably see you in another year and a half or two years, I'm not sure, hopefully, I mean, we'll be back, it's crazy out there. I mean, this is, could you imagine Paul, it wouldn't fly, Right? What do you mean, Paul? You're leaving and I might not see you for two years, if at all? That just doesn't fly. But you see, God brought Paul to a place, and we don't know the whole circumstances, where Paul was able to be used by God in a tremendous way because he didn't have the, the common restraints and responsibilities that marriage brings. Not that those things are wrong, but Paul allowed singlehood in Paul's life to be used as a blessing. And there are times where he's going to call people to singlehood, that it might be a greater blessing to them and then be a greater blessing to the work and service of the Lord. But here's what he says in verse 8. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. Again, he says that. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul switches his focus now to the unmarried and to the widows and his counsel is for them just like remain in that state if you can don't seek to be married because the single life is a life where you can be single-minded for the things of the lord where you can be devoted to the things of the lord in a greater way focused on what he has for you 
He's going to talk about that more later on in chapter 7, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. But this life of singleness, Paul says, he understands it's not for everyone, right? We have some instructions in verse 9 for those who are unable to remain single. He says, if, if you cannot be at rest with that single state, if you're going out of your mind and your hormones are just on fire, burning with passion, then he says, get married. Don't try to live in a way that you've not been designed or, or called to. Don't feel like you've got to neglect or, or, or refrain from that because it's the more biblical thing to do. No, he says, get married. It's all good. But if you're single, don't feel like you need to get married. So he says, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. But let me, let me add this. It's equally important not to jump into marriage just to satisfy some lustful urge. Been a lot of people I've seen that that's all that they all that they can think about. It's gotta get married. I've got needs. I've gotta get married. It's like what are you looking for in a spouse? Just a good pulse. The rest after that is negotiable. I just need, you know, blood pumping in their veins. That's fine by me. Like, and, and we kind of have, have turned this into, I just, I'm just looking for somebody that'll say yes, and that's all I need, really, for a, a spouse, right? Because I just haven't, and they're, and they're coming into marriage with all the, the wrong focus and, and reasons for being married. You see, too often, people who get married thinking it's going to cure that lustful appetite find that those battles still continue to rage even after marriage. Those things are, are still going to be there. What we are called to do, like I said earlier, is to crucify the flesh. See, sex is never a good reason alone to get married. It is certainly a blessing and a benefit and bonus of marriage. But if that's your sole reason for getting married, you're, you're going to open yourself up to a, a world of hurt because you're going to see that this doesn't always satisfy everything. There still comes the responsibility as a believer in Christ to say, I'm not going to live for these things of the flesh. I'm not going to let them have mastery over me. Remember, Paul said that in, in chapter 6 at the, at the beginning. Uh, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Don't allow yourself to be brought under the, the power or the mastery of a, of a lustful urge. A sex drive is a wonderful thing, but it's to be used in the, in the confines of marriage. It's not to have a hold of you. It's to be something you utilize in the, in the coming together and securing a bond in a married relationship. See, we're without excuse if we enter into sexual immorality because we've feel, well, I've just been burning with lust. I've got a passion. There, there are many people that, you know, look at this and they go, well, you know, my spouse just doesn't give me what I want. I've got needs. And they, they justify oftentimes moving into an area of sexual immorality. And we never have the right or the justification in that. Because of sexual immorality, marriage has been given so that we can come together in this. But we're never to expect something that's 
again, all about us. Our role in marriage is to be serving and giving to our spouse and to be walking in self-control. Well, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. We've been given the Spirit as believers today to walk in a manner where we're not raging, we're not out trying just to fulfill our needs, we're living in a manner of sacrifice, surrender, and service to those around us, and especially to our spouse. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 to 8 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. We've been equipped with and empowered by the Holy Spirit to not have to be subject to our lustful desires, but to walk in a manner that, again, as Paul says there, to possess our own vessel in sanctification and honor. Pleasing the Lord, blessing our spouse. You have the Holy Spirit, so honor the Lord with your life. Serve your spouse. Seek the Lord with how you can live for his glory in whatever situation you are in, single or married. Live to the honor and the glory of God and how you live in that state. All right, let's pray. Worship team, come on up. So Lord, we just bow our hearts before you here and, and we come asking for your help, Lord. And these are hard things to talk about. Even in marriages, they're hard things to talk about. But God, let us see today very clearly what you have in mind for us. Lord, what you've done to secure blessing in our married relationships through this wonderful act of intimacy that is meant to secure oneness, closeness, two people becoming one. And too often in marriage, we've allowed divisions in and we've fought, we've separated instead of growing as one. And Lord, I pray for our marriages here today that you'd strengthen them and encourage them in these things, Lord. God, may there be just that, that, that fresh calling to see our role in marriage and that you would just bring intimacy and closeness, union between husbands and wives here today. We pray for those that are single. Lord, those that maybe have been wrestling with that. God, I pray that they would live just by faith and trust in you. And in this season that they would say, Lord, I just want to honor you. I just want to live and for you and be used of you. Thank you for this time that I can have the freedom to do that. Lord, would you bless them? Strengthen them in that and, and just lead them in all that you have for them. May we seek, Lord, to simply glorify you with all that we are. So we ask that you'd help us and lead us and continue to pour your spirit into us, filling us to equip and empower us to live for you in a, in a pure way, in a sanctified way, in a, 
in a world that's gone completely away from what your word says. May we uphold your truth in how we live. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.